0: Some say Christian music peaked in the 90s. The 90s was a time of youth revolution. Toby Mac and DC Talk, they broke the mold of what Christian music artists could sound like with a mashup of hip-hop and rock and electric music, trying to be cool like MTV, I guess. Sure, there were artists like Rich Mullins who were still writing tender contemplative songs, but other artists like Audio Adrenaline or Delirious and Jars of Clay, they all were following this growing youthful trend. Even Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant, these budding singer-songwriters from the previous decade, they crafted youthful hits mirroring what was hot on the pop charts at the time. These developments came at a, to the head at the very end of the decade when Creed delivered Christian rock to the masses via roaring punk rock and heavy metal anthems that boldly brought together spiritual yearning with teen angst. Well, maybe you have a different opinion on whether or not Christian music peaked in the 90s. I was born in the middle of the phenomenon, and I got the aftermath or the the seconds of the revolution in Christian music in the early 2000s. So I'm not unfamiliar with many of the songs from the decade. And, And you have to admit that whether you appreciated their contributions to Christian music or not, many tunes from the decade have staying power, for better or worse. I mean, I'm pretty sure Caleb still plays Shine by the Newsboys every now and again. Or who hasn't asked the question, what will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak, thanks to DC Talk? One song that has staying power for me, in my mind, is Big House by Audio Adrenaline. And I'm assuming, or at least I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, that they loosely based their song off of John 14:2, In My Father's House Are Many Rooms. But I'm not sure where they got the imagery for a backyard for some heavenly pickup football. I guess God must be not only an American, but also an avid football fan. I wonder if he's rooting for the Cornhuskers this year. He's definitely not rooting for the Denver Broncos, if you know what I'm saying. The song is cheesy by today's standards. It's cheesy with a splash of honestly some poor theology, But many of us probably envision God's house something akin to what they did. A big, big house with the capacity for all desiring people to be able to eat and to play and to be merry in the presence of God. A place in heaven where we hope we have a room booked for us someday. A future place somewhere currently unreachable on this side of heaven where we will be with God forever. A place, we've heard John of Patmos tell us, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We've heard it's a place where there will be no more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. Ultimately, God's house is a place where we will be with God someday. But what if we didn't have to wait until we get to glory to have a taste of what it will be like to be in God's presence? What if God wants to make his presence known to us even right now? That even on earth, we could get a sample of what it will be like to be in God's presence forever. What if God wanted to set up shop in our messy world and make a home among sinful humans right now to give us a glimpse of what a perfect future relationship with him will look like? What if God is so eager for that day, but also so serious about his intentions to be in community with those created in his image and likeness that he desires to move into our neighborhood as a symbol, as a foretaste, as an appetizer of the kind of union we will experience one day in glory. And because humans were unable to reach heaven, what if heaven took the initiative and came down to us? And what if God wants to collaborate with people like you and me in making his house on earth a reality? In Exodus 25, the people of Israel are gathered around Mount Sinai en route to the promised land. In the previous chapter, God revealed to their leader Moses a set of stipulations or parameters for being in relationship with him, and the people have unanimously agreed to follow these instructions or rules for being a holy or set-apart people. Another way of viewing this scene could be that at Sinai, a wedding ceremony took place between God and his bride. The people of Israel and God entered into a marriage covenant, joining themselves to each other at the altar at Sinai. But still at Sinai, God summons Moses back up the mountain and reveals to Moses that he now intends to dwell and live among the people he has just joined himself to. And for 40 days, God and Moses have this conversation. And it spans several chapters in your Bibles, but it's probably the chapters you have skipped over in your Old Testament, let alone all of Scripture. If you are casually reading straight through your entire Bible in a year, the the last third of Exodus may be where you hit your first speed bump. You start reading about these blueprints and schematics for a portable building and furniture and clothing, and you start wondering, what does all of this have to do with following Jesus? How How could my Bible that sounds like Ikea instructions have any relevance to my walk with Christ? And the thought crosses your mind that maybe I should just speed-read this section, but I don't want you to miss out what God is doing here. After covenanting and joining himself to Israel, God now wants to live with his people. He doesn't want to be distant from them, but instead wants to be a visible presence in their community. In fact, God wants to move this isolated meeting on the top of the mountain where heaven and earth are meeting. He wants to move it down into the Israelite camp so that all can come into his presence, not just Moses. God wants to be with the people. And he wants them to build him a house for himself that he can live in their midst. God wants a place in the Israelite neighborhood. And a better reading of this conversation between God and Moses on the mountain is that God shows Moses his heavenly dwelling place. In a way, God gives Moses a tour of his heavenly temple. Exodus 25 says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern. And Moses has this brief apocalypse on the top of Sinai. We associate apocalypse with the end times, but the word apocalypse simply just means unveiling. When Moses is at the top of the mountain which God's glory has descended upon, God unveiled his heavenly dwelling place to show him what it will look like or what it will look like in the future. Much like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Moses is having this vision of God's heavenly palace. Heaven and earth are colliding at the summit of Sinai, not unlike when heaven and earth were one back at the Garden of Eden. Moses, this earthly mortal, penetrates into the heavenly realm, and he gets a glimpse of God's heavenly temple or home. And Moses is told to write all this down. All that God says for later reference on how to build a small-scale replica of it back down in the valley. This is what will be an earthly copy or a reflection of all that Moses is seeing of God's heavenly home, and it's to be called a tabernacle. Moses is told by God how to build something heavenly but with earthly material. In a way, God is wanting to make an incarnational scale model of his heavenly residence in the neighborhood of Israel that's not fixated on Sinai anymore. It's not fixated in one location, though it later will be in Jerusalem. But this will be a mobile version that can be dismantled and reassembled during the remaining journey toward the promised land. In fact, the experience of heaven and earth meeting Will be something all Israelites can see. God's presence is not isolated from them. At God's house is where God can be found. Yes, God is infinite and everywhere, but God's house will be where one could find God's presence in a special way compared to other places. God's presence will be manifested in his earthly home differently than other places. It will be visible and felt and interacted, not on the peaks of mountains anymore, but in the center of the community for all peoples, whether you're Israelite or not, to see and experience. This concept is not as strange as we might think. If you're still figuring out your summer vacation plans, right now in Orlando, Florida, the galaxy far, far away, and Earth meet at a magical place where dreams come true called Star Wars Galaxy's Edge for just $109 plus tax. For one single day, you can experience the magic of Star Wars in real life. If you wait in line long enough, you can fly a replica of the Millennium Falcon people. You're not as excited as I am about this. Thank you. You can ride and take on Kylo Ren and the First Order, or at least a symbolic recreation of them and another attraction called the Rise of the Resistance. You can walk and make your own genuine replica lightsaber for only $219 plus tax. I know, right? Maybe Star Wars isn't up your alley. You can experience the magic of the movies in real life. It's not monopolized by Disney. You can walk over in Orlando for another $109 plus tax and experience Harry Potter and Earth colliding at Universal Studios' The Wizarding World of Harry Potter. The pages of J.K. Rowling's novels as interpreted by Warner Brothers Studios can be experienced in real life. Replicas of famous locations in the wizarding world of the boy who lived, such as Hogwarts and Diagon Alley and Hogsmeade, they exist, and you can see and smell and touch and even taste the experience of being in Harry Potter's world. You can actually build a replica wand, but it's actually a little bit cheaper, $55, or you can get an interactive one for $59. The list goes on. Popular tourist and vacation destinations such as Ken Ham's Ark Encounter in northwestern Kentucky is a replica of the biblical Moses, Noah's Ark in Genesis 6 that you can experience what it would have felt like to be in a real ark. You When you visit a Civil War battle reenactment, a Renaissance fair or even certain museum exhibits, these are all replicas of, uh, on scale models of something else that happened that we can experience. Building replicas of otherworldly places with earthly materials is not an ancient phenomenon. People today are still recreating secondhand knockoffs of often mystical, unearthly realities to gain access to those experiences and even the power of those realities in an artificial way whether it be a movie or a TV show, a book, a historical period, or something else. Humans have always wanted to try to capture and contain and recreate as best we can another world or place or time using the materials and means at our disposal. But that's what God's wanting Moses and the people to do to construct using earthly materials, a scale model of this heavenly dwelling place to experience a sample of God's presence and power even here on earth. That's what the tabernacle is. This isn't supposed to replace God. This earthly heavenly tabernacle is not a substitute for God. It was a means of connecting and communing to God because God's presence is there. As you probably know, Israel was commanded not to create a carved image or likeness of God. In fact, the Israelites will eventually get in trouble a few centuries later in 1 Samuel 4 when they go to battle against the Philistines, believing the Ark of the Covenant itself will protect them as opposed to God. This tabernacle, this mobile dwelling place for God on earth was a passageway or an access point to the divine an embassy for God on earth, heaven's own presence and territory on earth that all people, not just Israel, can see. Now, God is pretty specific on what he wants this replica of this heavenly dwelling place to look like. Time does not allow for me to go into the exact reasons as to why God is so particular. It's a bit of a rabbit trail from what I believe God wants us to focus on this morning. But for those who palates I may have savored this morning, I'll give you a little hint. The tabernacle and all of its different meticulous furnishings and contents, the Ark of the Covenant and the table of bread, the lampstand, the bronze altar, all of that stuff, they all correlate to the Genesis creation narrative. Yeah, you probably never heard that one before. Those boring chapters aren't so boring after all. I'll let you chew on that for a little moment. Maybe that'll be a good discussion for a fall Bible study. Wink, wink. But what I feel God wants us to focus on this morning is who is tasked with the daunting responsibility of building such a structure and all of its contents. God didn't want to make the tabernacle poof into existence. He could have done that, but he didn't want to do that. God wanted to make his home, this conduit between earth and heaven, a collaborative experience between God and humanity. Human hands were required. Human energy was needed. Human ingenuity was desired. God wanted human hands to run across that acacia wood boards that, that would be overlaid with precious gold to be made into the Ark of the Covenant. God wanted human hands to bend and hammer in the pure gold branches of the menorah candles. God wanted human hands to t- stitch together the fabrics of the curtains for the tabernacle and the garments for the priests. This is what made it incarnational But the question is, who is God going to partner with? Who are the ones enlisted to build the tabernacle and all of its sacred furniture? If there's truly going to be an earthly model of a heavenly place, who has God deemed worthy of such a building contract? Who is Moses supposed to relay all of these blueprints to? Is Moses supposed to build it? Is Aaron and the Levites and all the priests supposed to? Who in all of Israel is God going to call to undertake a momentous task of recreating God's own personal heavenly dwelling place in an earthly form on our planet? Well, amidst God, Moses' transcendent apocalyptic tour, As he's jotting down all the specific schematics and blueprints, God name drops the builders he has in mind for his mobile home. God already knows the identities, the names, the faces, the resumes of the individuals he wants to be general contractors of his heavenly embassy. And it's a couple of guys you've never heard of. I guarantee you, you've never heard their names before. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalah, the son of Uriah, the son of Hur and the tribe of Judah. And behold, I've appointed with them Ohalab, the son of Ashma, of the tribe of Dan. Can I introduce you to Bezalah and Ohalab this morning? I reckon Moses probably needed to be introduced to them as well. Israel's is a big country with a lot of faces. He wasn't Facebook friends with them probably. Moses probably never met these guys. They are important public figures. They're not military heroes or religious people like Joshua or Aaron or the other elders in Israel. But that didn't matter to God. God knows everyone, from the great to the small, and God can use anyone for his purposes. Bezelah and Ohaleb are a couple of nobodies. We know little to next to nothing about them. They aren't the ones interacting with God regularly. They aren't the ones doing sign and wonders. They aren't in the room where it happens, and unlike Aaron Burr, seem to have no itching or inclination to be there. They're on the sidelines looking in and seemingly content to be so. They're good-natured average Joes, minding their own business, raising their families, going along for the ride until they reached the aforementioned promised land. They're perfectly fine watching people like Moses and others go up, on the mountain to talk with God they probably had little interest in religion or spirituality that's for other people who went to school for that kind of thing in fact they're probably more preoccupied with making an end's meet in the wilderness when we think of the exodus and the escape from Egypt one may not consider that not only people's families were uprooted but people's businesses were uprooted as well Farmers, livestock owners, bakers, butchers, carpenters, blacksmiths, all were forced to change their means of making a living to accommodate the wilderness. And in the time that they've left Egypt and now arrived at Mount Sinai, Bezalel and Ohaleb have probably shifted from a brick-and-mortar business model to a mobile one. From what we know of the two individuals, they are skilled artisans and craftsmen specializing in metallurgy and carpentry. Imagine having to lug and drag with you through the desert all the equipment to keep at your trade. To not fall out of practice or keep up with the demands of such a profession, even in the middle of nowhere. The Israelites were handed a lot of silver and gold jewelry by the Egyptians as an incentive to get out of Egypt from the last plague. So I'm confident that they still needed someone like a blacksmith. Skills and woodworking were likely a hot commodity in those days too, Bezalah and Ohaleb were busy men. But these guys, this is who God hires to build his house. This is who God has chosen for the project. No one else was to head up the tabernacle construction. A couple of skilled, talented entrepreneurs and artists with a knack for something completely unrelated to spirituality and religion that God will enhance with the filling of his spirit. Bezalah. And in fact, both Bethlehem and Ohalab don't even belong to the priestly tribe of Israel. You may know that all the priests come from the tribe of Levi. Bezalah belongs to the tribe of Judah, which at the time is not necessarily special yet. Ohalab is worse because his family was from the tribe of Dan, which was one of the most least honorable tribes in all of Israel. God is choosing those with non-religious backgrounds and expertise to do perhaps the most religious task in all of Israel. But in choosing these men, God demonstrated that he can use whoever whoever he wills. Whether you're a Moses-like figure or not, whether you're a priestly figure or not, whether you were born in the right tribe or not, none of that matters to God. God calls whomever he wants to call, and God will empower whoever he f- f- calls to fulfill that calling. How wonderful to know that God calls all of us by name, and that he knows our backgrounds, our dispositions, our propensities, and as well as our potentialities. In his grace and goodness, he says to you and me, I have called you by name. I want to separate you to do a work for which I have called you. Are you willing to? Perhaps, church, there is a reason God places us in certain professions or vocations we find ourselves this morning. It's easy to think that my calling in life is not on par with others who are more obviously slanted towards the Lord's work in the world it's easy to assume that god only calls and uses pastors missionaries and the like for kingdom work for ministry for running the church for building god's dwelling place here on earth but we see that god uses and wants to use anyone for doing the lord's work in and outside my father's house you may not be a preacher but that does not mean you are unnecessary in God's kingdom. God needs people who are skilled and talented and experienced in a wide variety of backgrounds and trades and enterprises for the use in his kingdom. God needs plumbers and electricians, truck drivers, farmers, ranchers, bankers, teachers, janitors, barbers, and so much more. Building and making things for God's glory is a valid ministry church the pastors in Israel's day did not build God's house people like Bezela and ohalab did the pastors in Israel's day were only responsible with sustaining and facilitating it for the sake of the Bezalas and ohalabs God still needs in his calling Bezalas and Ohalabs today think about how impoverished the church would be if there were none think about the impact on the worshiping life of Israel if there were no craftsmen, no artists, no talented, skilled people around to make a suitable earthly dwelling place for God's presence to manifest itself. The community of faith needs both Moses's and Bezalah's and Ohalop's, priests and craftsmen working together, each with their own calling and service to the Lord. What skills are the Lord wanting you to contribute to the building of his dwelling place on earth today? What skills, what talents has he cultivated in you that can contribute to the building of God's presence here today? But God also tells Moses that not only has he called Bezalah, but Ezra will be filled with the Spirit of God, with ability, and intelligence, with knowledge, and of all craftsmanship. This wording in verse 3 of our English translation seems to indicate that God will give Bezelah a laundry list of skills that Bezalel did not already possess. However, it's better translated from the original Hebrew that Bezelah is given only one thing by God, and that was his Holy Spirit which then perfected Bezalel's wisdom, insight, knowledge, and work, performance in general. In fact, what it basically is saying is that the filling of the Spirit of God affected Bezalel and was able to enable him to be wiser or more insightful, more knowledgeable, and more capable for the work God had for him. Bezalel and presumably Ohaleb already had talents and and giftings, skills and proficiencies. God's Spirit merely amplified them to fulfill the calling he placed on their lives. All their abilities trace their origins to God so it makes sense that God can elevate and magnify them as he sees fit. You may have heard preachers talk about spiritual gifts before because parts of the New Testament talk about them. I don't want to get in the lost in the weeds. We're talking about spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, interpretations in tongues. I ain't a Pentecostal or charismatic, and so I'll do the Baptist thing and just ignore it. But I want to highlight is the significance of God imparting his spirit to a couple of guys like Bezalel and Ohaleb. Few in scripture are afforded the opportunity to be possessed and empowered by the spirit of God. Only major characters in the Bible are said to have the spirit of God rest upon them for, do, for them to do amazing stuff for God. And we're talking prophets and warriors and judges and priests and kings But here in Exodus, God is more than willing to let his spirit enter in and be utilized by everyday carpenters and metallurgists, builders and craftsmen. I think the Holy Spirit's agenda hasn't changed since then. The spirit of God has not grown stringier or stricter over time. In fact, the opposite is more true. Jesus told his disciples, his church, the Holy Spirit will come upon people even like them to remind them all that Jesus said and empower them to do all that Jesus did to become the new dwelling place for God among men. And when one looks at the church in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon ordinary fishermen and tax collectors, zealots and women, granting them supernatural abilities, yes, but it also enhanced skills and abilities they already he had but they didn't quite consider using him for god yet we know the apostle peter was a talker he liked to hear himself talk much like i do that was a joke um and on pentecost yeah you can laugh at me it's okay and on pentecost when the spirit of god is given to him he does something he'd never done in his entire life he preaches a sermon to a handful of strangers and quotes the prophet Joel who forecasted that all along God's spirit would be poured out on all people on a day like that. From the outset, the church has been populated by people when given the spirit of God are equipped to fulfill whatever God's calling was placed on their life. And whether that be the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching, the gift of serving, the gift of evangelism, the gift of prayer, the gift of serving tables, the list goes gone. God sought out, called, and empowered Bezala and Oholib Christians then, and God is still doing that now. Do you believe the Spirit of God is still living an active, church? Because I do. And the Spirit of God still wants to collaborate with Bezala and Oholib even in this church community. And so in closing, I feel my role is that of like Moses, God has revealed this word to me that he is still searching for and calling and empowering receptive bezulas and Ohalavs even in this community. God hasn't entrusted just me to build his dwelling place here in Gibbon Baptist Church. He has laid that responsibility on all of us for all of us to work together. I know I speak to a variety of people this morning, those who are enjoying a respite over the summer months from significant church responsibilities that happened in the fall, to those who contribute regularly if not weekly in our Sunday morning gatherings, to those who are retired from years of active and noble service in this community, but also to those who are on the fence about their participation in our community of faith. I want to stir us all to consider how the Spirit of God may be calling or empowering us to serve this local church this morning, whether immediately or in the future. For some, when you think about our life together at Gibbon Baptist Church, what do you hear God calling you to contribute? When you think about our worship gatherings, our ministries, our teaching, our outreach opportunities, what gifts do you want to bring and contribute? Is it the gift of music? Is it the gift of child care? The gift of friendship? The gift of manual labor? The gift of cooking or baking? The gift of preaching? The gift of teaching? The gift of serving? If you are a Christian, you have that same Spirit of God that filled Bezalah. This same Spirit imparts on all of us different gifts and talents, so how are you exercising those gifts? How are you seeking to use your gifts to build up others in our church family? And for those who are veterans in this congregation, how are you empowering the next generation to use their gifts? I want you to know that I value each and every one of you and your contributions. And I want to do my part to help you get plugged in and fulfill the calling God has placed on your heart. And if you're discouraged that you haven't figured out your giftings or you don't feel the nudging of the Holy Spirit on your heart, remember that sometimes spiritual gifts take a long time to master. Years, decades, a lifetime, and perhaps God is wanting to prepare you first. Maybe a part of being used by God and utilizing our spiritual gifts that he's entrusted us is going to school to being a diligent worker, getting some experience or getting some training. God may be fostering that gift inside you for a later future use, and he's wanting to involve you someday. For those this morning who are already doing what you hear God is calling you to do in our church, may I remind you that his spirit is that which empowers us to do that good work. One of the dangers in doing the Lord's work, especially for a long time, is mistakenly or accidentally trying to do ministry in our power and not the Spirit of God. What happens when we try to do our callings in our own strength is that we inevitably grow fatigued and anxious and easily irritated, discouraged, and then we eventually burn out. In a way, we become out of breath for ministry when we are not breathing in the breath of God, which is the Holy Spirit. God never intended his dwelling place on earth to be built in isolation. God partnered with Bezalah and Ohalib. God wants to partner with us. God does not want our consecrated work to become life-draining work. And as the prophet Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so as you help lead worship on Sunday mornings, as you run tech in the back booth as you facilitate Awana for children in the fall, as you organize VBS for next year, as you make a funeral meal for someone, as you attend church com- committee meetings, lean into the power of the Spirit of God for strength. Pray for it. Ask for it. Hang on to it. Spread it and leak it, church. I believe God is still calling, empowering, and teaming up with Besla and Ohalibs. Not because he's putting together a a pickup football team for a scrimmage in his backyard at his big, big house. Rather, because he wants to create a new community of men and women who are enjoying his gifts while living life in the spirit with him.